1993, a molecular biologist named Francisco Mojica at the University of Alicante, Spain, discovered odd clusters of repeating DNA sequences in bacteria. Mojica eventually named the repeats CRISPR, which stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. So you can see why everyone just says CRISPR. Because some of the CRISPR sequences in bacteria matched DNA sequences in virus genomes, Mojica hypothesized that CRISPR was part of a bacterial immune system, one evolved to identify and disable invading viruses. It's doubtful that he or anyone at the time could envision the profound effect that this discovery would have on the future of biotech and medicine. Enter Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna. Their collaboration, which got underway in the late 2000s, led to breakthroughs in understanding how CRISPR works and how it can be turned into a tool for editing genes. Their efforts were also part of an intense race that continues today as rival labs struggle to establish priority for discoveries and to secure patents. Today we talk with Walter Isaacson, author and professor of history at Tulane, about his recent book, The Codebreaker. Based on extensive interviews with the main protagonists, Walter tells the story of how researchers turned CRISPR into the most promising gene editing technology available. There was like an aha moment, like, oh my goodness, if that's how CRISPR-Cas9 works in a bacteria, it will be easy to reprogram the single-guide RNA and to reconfigure and optimize it to work in human cells. And so suddenly a curiosity-driven piece of research becomes a discovery that becomes an invention that becomes a piece of translational medicine. Just a couple of years ago, CRISPR was used in a clinical trial to treat a patient with sickle cell anemia. And so far, it's been extremely successful. Her symptoms have improved dramatically. CRISPR has also shown potential for controlling Tay-Sachs and Huntington's disease, and scientists continue to exploit it for other new uses, like testing whether you've been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. In this episode, we talk with Walter about his new book on the ingenious Boo. work of Jennifer Doudna and her collaborators, and the implications of CRISPR for basic biology and human medicine. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Well, Walter, thanks so much for joining us on Big Biology uh, to talk about your new book, The, the Code Breaker, which is largely about Jennifer Doudna, uh, who, along with Emmanuel Charpentier, won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry last year for the discoverer of CRISPR-Cas9. Um, we think a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with uh, what we're just going to call CRISPR for simplicity, but uh, can you just give us the, the basics? So what, what is it and why is it important enough to have earned uh, a Nobel Prize for the discoverers? Yeah, CRISPR is a system bacteria have been using for a billion years to fight viruses. And what they do is they take a mugshot of any virus that ever attacks them, i.e. a little snippet of the genetic code of that virus, and they interweave it in their own DNA in these clustered repeated sequences we call CRISPRs. And so that's really, you know, amazing. That's something we could use these days, which is an adaptive system for fighting viruses. What Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier discovered is exactly how that system works, which is it takes a little guide RNA and uses a scissors, known as an enzyme, to chop up uh, any attacking virus that comes back again. And they figured out, oh man, we can repurpose this to be a tool that will edit any gene we target in any organism, including humans. 
And so that's what it is now. It's a system to edit our own DNA. This isn't the first version of genetic engineering, though, right? I mean, there have been other options around for a little while. So why the excitement about this particular kind? One of the really amazing things about uh, CRISPR, and it's just like the messenger RNA vaccines we're using now, is that they're reprogrammable, meaning if a new virus comes along, you just reprogram the messenger RNA. If you want to target a new gene, you just type in uh, the genetic code and reprogram it to the new gene that you want to cut or edit or paste. And this ability to quickly reprogram makes, obviously, CRISPR uh, much better than the old-fashioned tools like ZFNs or Talons, or for that matter, uh, going back to the 1970s, we had a lot of uh, genetic engineering tools, including recombinant DNA. But this is something even I could do. I did it in Jennifer Dowden's lab, and people like uh, Josiah Zaner and other biohackers are doing it in their basement. So this is a quantum leap into a new world of editing. So, so we're already talking about it in terms of its use as a tool. Uh, just, just for a minute, so, so what do we know about the evolutionary origins of, of CRISPR? So like how, how long ago and what groups of bacteria invented it? And, you know, what, what's its use in, in vivo? You know, it's both in archaea and in bacteria, which shows uh, when they discovered it in both places that it must have a very long evolutionary history and one that has a very important natural purpose to it. Uh, Francisco Mojica, a delightful guy in my book who is back then in the 1990s, a graduate student in the coast of Mediterranean coast of Spain, discovered these clustered repeated sequences uh, in the archaea that he was um, sequencing in great salt ponds. But then it was also discovered in bacteria. And so we think it's been around for more than a billion years in microorganisms. Is its presence in those two lineages, does that reflect, you know, descent from a com- some common ancestral group? Or do they think that there was horizontal gene transfer of those capabilities between between the groups? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not sure it has fully been determined in the case of CRISPR, uh, but it is something that's rather easy to evolve, apparently, because it's in different types of bacteria, different types of archaea. And, um, you know, when uh, Mojica discovered it, it took him a long... He thought he had just sequenced the whole thing wrong. I mean, this is the 1990s before gene sequencing was easy. So it's taken a while, but after... 10, 15 years, it's been discovered in, you know, so many different types of bacteria. Is it all the the same CRISPR-Cas9 system, or is there a diversity of CRISPR-like defenses in in these bacteria and archaea? There's a great diversity on the uh, CRISPR-associated enzymes, I mean, the Cas enzymes. So there's CRISPR-Cas1, which was the first thing that uh, Jennifer Doudna worked on trying to figure it out in her lab. CRISPR-Cas9 is the most famous because it does it's a perfectly uh, easy-to-use tool for editing human genes. CRISPR-Cas12 and CRISPR-Cas13 are particularly interesting now because they're great detection technologies, especially CRISPR-Cas13, which detects RNA, not DNA, and can cut RNA, you know, as opposed to most of the CRISPR-Cas systems cut DNA. Well, guess what has an RNA uh, system, and that's the coronavirus. So it's it's enjoying its moment in the sun right now. Well, I want to Sort of switch over and talk about uh, an issue that Marty and I discuss among ourselves a lot. So, so both of us are really interested in, in biological complexity and how complex systems emerge that regulate various aspects of biological systems. And we're trying to sort of 
put that together with how how people have been describing and thinking about CRISPR systems, which are you know way, ways of of targeting individual genes, and and from our perspective, we're wondering if um, you know is it possible that that we're making too big of a deal of CRISPR in the following sense that that um, it's used to target individual sequences, and so from that perspective, it seems like it would work well for things like uh, you know diseases that arise from individual genes, sickle cell anemia, Tay Sachs, Huntington's disease, and a few others. Um, but a lot of things, a lot of traits that we're interested in in diseases are complex, you know, polygenic in origin. Is is it going to be difficult to use CRISPR to modify these more complex traits? Well, first of all, yes, because the uh, single and monogenic traits are going to be the first ones and are easy. And they were just last year. Sickle cell, for example, was, uh, you know, CRISPR was used to cure uh, in a Mississippi patient. Uh, but let's not forget, there are about a thousand uh, pretty simple genetic mutations like that that cause uh, some very famous, like the ones you mentioned, along with muscular dystrophy and cystic fibrosis. Now you get to the next phase. When I went to the CRISPR conferences in the past two or three years, you know, up in Quebec, Cold Spring Harbor, it's totally amazing how people are pushing the bounds of this. So David Liu at Harvard, as I'm sure you know, has created uh, prime editing, base editing, which allows multiple edits, multiple genes, and not just cutting the DNA, but putting insertions in, sometimes without a double-stranded uh, break. George Church is also looking at ways to do, uh, you know, uh, using CRISPR and CRISPR-like technologies to be able to edit multiple genes. So the technology is already there. Of course, our knowledge is not there in terms of why don't we make these 52 edits in this way you know, we just are clueless as how that might affect a complex system such as, you know, a, you know, intelligence or personality is way at the end of the spectrum of complexity. But even moderately uh, complex ones like muscle mass or even uh, hair color or eye color. Uh, so uh, we, we don't want to go down that path uh, until we can do it step by step. Yeah. How, so how are they doing those studies now? I haven't been to those conferences. Is it sort of a two, three, four different manipulations at a time? And the the extra piece that often comes comes around, one of the other things we talk about on the show a lot, are all the variety of epigenetic effects, you know, the other things that live in the cells and affect the way that the, the DNA is sort of wound up and how genes get transcribed. How, are they tackling all of that complexity at once, or do they have sort of a systematic walkthrough adding this, changing that? What's the approach right now? Well, first of all, they've been uh, tackling off-target edits, which is the big problem, including in simple CRISPR systems. You sometimes hit the targets you don't mean to. I think they've made enormous advances in that. Uh, in theory, with uh, both base editing and prime editing and some of the things uh, George Church is doing at Harvard, uh, you can, uh, you know, transcribe very long sequences. You can add in long sequences, but they've not yet tested it on complex genetic or genetic predisposed traits, such as, uh, as I say, eye color, hair color. Let me pick something in the middle of the spectrum there. But there are obviously ones that are far more complex because they involve either epigenetics or involve environmental issues. Now, you get to the most complex of all, and those are mental things like, you know, uh, bipolar or depressive 
personalities or intelligence, things like that, those are caused by things that we just don't know that include both genetic predispositions and environmental factors and what we would call chance is another euphemism for we don't know what the hell is causing it. Right. <laughs> um, you mentioned, I think, in passing plasticity, and that's another topic that's of great interest to us. Um, is, is anybody using CRISPR to try to modify, um, say, norms of reaction, so the way that genotypes respond to environmental variation? Uh, that, that would seem to be an important thing to try to do. I do not know of any papers in the past two years, but you have such a uh, and uh, such an informed audience, I'm sure they're going to bombard us with some papers that I've not seen. <laughs> um, yeah, I must say I have focused mainly on CRISPR and the use of CRISPR as a gene editing tool in the way that it was developed by Doudna Sharpenjay and uh, Fong Zhang and George Church and now David Liu. I haven't, uh, you know, this is mainly a narrative story about with Jennifer Doudna as a central character and some other of the rivals and colleagues that she had. So I've not tried to do a survey of all of what's happening in CRISPR, especially since it's changing so fast. I mean, I was blown away at the last in-person CRISPR conference, or even the Cold Spring Harbor one virtual, which was this past October, I think. Uh, you know, go to the Cold Spring Harbor virtual CRISPR conference website. There's about, I don't know, 300 papers there and the ones I drilled down on are the ones that David Liu was doing with base and prime editing. But it's astonishing, uh, the amount of work that... And transposons. I'm, I'm sure that uh, that has nothing to do with plasticity, uh, the question you asked. But uh, Sam Sternberg and uh, Fong Zhang have both used jumping genes, you know, as, you know, transposons, to be able to quickly insert things that you might want to do. That was a pretty huge breakthrough at this uh, last CRISPR conference. One more last sort of science-focused question, although it's kind of blue sky. Um, what's your perspective and what's the, the folks that you write about in the book, their perspective about the possibility that CRISPR 10, 20, 30 years from now will sort of not exactly have the same magnitude impact that was expected back in the 90s when we were talking about sequencing the genome? Because that, when that was done, that was supposed to really, you know, be innovative in many different ways. And of course it was, but the impact that it had, I don't think, was quite the same as what was expected. So what's your thought on that? Yeah, in my book, I talk about, uh, you know, Collins and uh, Ventner and, you know, uh, others doing the sequencing of the human gene. And I, I was at Time Magazine. We put them on the cover. We said, this is going to change everything. And then it didn't change everything. You know, it was, I won't say it was a dud, but we got to read our genome, but we weren't very clear about, okay, now what? You know, and it helped, in, as you said, in many ways, but it was not the big game changer that I do think genetic editing as a field will be. That doesn't mean CRISPR will be uh, 20, 30 years from now, uh, the game changer. It means that things that started with CRISPR and came out of CRISPR, including base and prime editing, which in some ways are different than a CRISPR-Cas9 system, but uh, and using of transposons and others, if in the past four years we've seen such leaps uh, in gene editing that spring out of CRISPR and may not technically use what you would call a CRISPR-Cas system uh, to do the cutting and pasting, uh, I just think that's going to be a phenomenal change. And it's not as if I'm doing blue sky prediction. As I said, we've already done it with sickle cell and it worked. 
It's been used on cancer, uh, which is, I think, the really big one for uh, the human species, which is if you're going to have immunotherapy and you're going to make sure that your immune system and uh, you know, T cells can fight the, the tumor cells uh, most effectively, uh, CRISPR has proved effective both in China and at the University of Pennsylvania in making edits uh, so that the immunotherapy is not defeated by the cancer defenses. Uh, likewise, we're doing congenital blindness at the University of Washington. So already we're doing real things. And let me just add, every time I'm in one of these podcasts live or at a meeting live or with Jennifer at an event, everybody says, oh, we're kind of worried about this or it's not happening. But so many people come up. I got an email this morning. I'm still choked up about it with a picture. A, a woman said, I just heard you last night on something I did. I want you to see this picture of my 12-year-old. And they say she's going to die in three years. And here's the type of, you know, it's a single gene mutation. Can you please get me in touch with Jennifer to save my daughter? So, I mean, the, we're, not, we're talking about uh, that didn't happen after the Human Genome Project said in 2000 or 2001, bingo, here it is, go read it. Uh, but these things are being worked on now. Yeah, I, I think of it as sort of the Genome Project as a way to, to you know, read what's in the genome, and here's the tool to, to go manipulate it. The many tools. I mean, yeah. that's what you said about, well, CRISPR in 20 years from now. You know, we may not even still be calling it CRISPR, but we'll have a toolbox that began with the CRISPR-Cas editing and cutting system. Great. Well, let's um, let's turn back to some details of the book, and um, you know, we we love the focus on Jennifer Doudna and a, a lot of the excitement of the race and the competition among different teams. So let's let's just start with with Jennifer herself to maybe tell us a little bit about her her early history, uh, where she grew up, what kind of kid she was, and what what inspired her to get into science. You know, she grew up in Ilo, Hawaii, feeling like an outsider because she was a tall, lanky, blonde girl from the mainland, her family was, and she was in Ilo in this small school, which had, you know, everybody else in the class was of Polynesian descent, and they called her a Hayole, which is probably not quite as bad as it sounds, but it sounded bad to her when she was in sixth grade, and, you know, she, like a lot of the people I've written about, you know, ranging from you know, Leonardo da Vinci to uh, Albert Einstein feel like an outsider in their own skin when they're in their environment. Uh, and so she, you know, became a little bit reclusive and also fanatically curious about nature. Like, you know, why does the sleeping grass curl when I touch it? And what makes, you know, biological mechanisms move? So one day her dad left on her bed the double helix, uh, and she comes home from sixth grade, and there it is. And she thinks it's a detective story. And so she, like, goes, okay, puts it aside for a rainy day. And when she picks it up one Saturday, she realizes she's right. It's a detective story, and you know, an adventure, a race, a competition about the secrets of life. And uh, in some ways, it's what I tried to do in this book, because not only does that excite her, this notion of you know, discovering the secrets of life and being in a race to do so, she, of course, notices the character of Rosalind Franklin, who's treated a bit condescendingly by uh, Watson. Uh, but she doesn't care that it's condescending. She just says, wow, women can be scientists. So she tells her school counselor she wants to become a scientist. And you know, this is an old guy in a school in Elon. He says, no, girls don't do science. So this propels her. 
And she, of course, does. I mean, she's persistent and competitive, goes to Pomona to do chemistry. But even then, she's insecure. She has a deep streak of insecurity, but her dad pushes her. And she says, you know, maybe she's going to study French, maybe keep with science, maybe apply to a state school. And she says, he says, you're good at chemistry. Why don't you apply to Harvard? And she says, I'll never get into Harvard. And he says, well, you certainly won't get into Harvard if you don't apply. Well, she does. And of course, she meets Jack Shostak. She ends up focusing on RNA when, as we talked about earlier, all the alpha males in the biology world were focusing on the Human Genome Project and DNA. And she and Shostak and others discover how, in fact, her dissertation is she works out how the structure of RNA and how it can self-replicate. And uh, the self-replication of RNA leads to the theory, which I assume is correct, that it, it was probably the molecule that began life on this planet. So that puts her on a trajectory of ask the big questions. And the second trajectory is RNA is a much more interesting molecule than DNA. And that's how we get to where she is as a scientist. And along the way, she's starting to meet this colorful cast of characters that is both looking at RNA and also looking at CRISPR, which, as you know, is an RNA-guided system. So let me divert off into a sociological question here for a second. So you mentioned in passing that she and, and many other famous scientists really felt like outsiders when they were young um, and maybe even later in their lives. Do, do you think there's a, a causal connection there? So, so did, does feeling like an outsider sort of drive these people in, into science in some way and to be better scientists? Or is it is it a parallel thing so that, you know, people who are scientists also have this sort of pre-existing condition of feeling like an outsider? Well, I don't know if we'll discover, even with all our sequencing, whether there's a gene for curiosity. But curiosity is the root of what happens when you're an outsider. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci is obviously the first example I've written about 500 years ago. But uh, he's from this little village of Vinci, and he's illegitimate, and he's gay, and he's left-handed, and he's distracted. And, you know, he goes to the village of Florence, uh, the city of Florence, and he's quite embraced. But the entire time growing up, he's poking around for clues like, okay, how do I fit in? And these mysteries of, okay, here's me and here's the cosmos. I mean, that's him as a self-portrait, that nude guy doing jumping jacks in the circle in the square we call Vitruvian Man. is like, here I am in this cosmos. Uh, remind me, how do I fit in? And that poking around for clues, and one of my favorite novels is The Movie Goer by Walker Percy. And it's all about somebody who doesn't quite fit in and is always poking around for clues, even looking at a dung beetle crawling after they'd been shot in the Korean War and were, you know, lying there on the ground. And so I, I use that as a framing device sometimes, because whether it's Einstein puzzling over the compass needle he gets at age six, twitching and pointing north, and of course, as a Jew in Germany in the 20s, he's not exactly, or teens and 20s, he's uh, feeling like an outsider. But I think it's correlated to and perhaps a causal relationship to just a curiosity about poking around for how do we fit into this cosmos. Huh, huh. Wow, that's powerful stuff. That kind of makes the hair go out on the back of my neck. So yeah, yeah. neat. Notice yeah. I dodged your question whether it was a correlation <laughs> or a causation. <laughs> so the the curious stick with the the curiosity theme a little bit. I, you wrote in the the book that um, Doudna, you know, started from the path to, to scientist as driven by curiosity. 
was the the particular discovery and the, the advances and eventually sort of transformation into a technology that Doudna did, did it ever transition into sort of, can I produce a tool in the interest of human health, or was the curiosity element the, the main driver throughout? There was an aha moment, and she had been driven by curiosity totally in her uh, work on the early work on CRISPR and CRISPR-Cas9, and isolating the components of CRISPR-Cas9. And so when she and Charpentier and their team end up doing it in uh, the spring of 2012, uh, and they're doing their experiments, and they say, okay, man, just you can fuse a single guide RNA and attach it to a Cas9 enzyme, and you can program it this way, and in the test tube, it actually cuts exactly like we thought it was the genetic sequence of a, uh, you know, of a, a bacterial uh, DNA in this case. And she said there was like an aha moment, like, oh my goodness, if that's how CRISPR-Cas9 works in a bacteria, it will be easy to reprogram the single-guide RNA and to reconfigure and optimize it to work in human cells. And so suddenly a curiosity-driven piece of research becomes a discovery that becomes an invention that becomes a piece of translational medicine. Now, I don't believe uh, fervently in what Vannevar Bush called the linear model, which is it's always curiosity-driven basic research that leads to discoveries that then leads to applications that then lead to medical technologies, because I think it's more of an interactive dance. I mean, in my book, I got the wonderful yogurt makers, you know, Rodolf Barangu and Philippe Horvath, who are doing it for real practical reasons, which is the billion-dollar starter culture industry in yogurt and cheese. How do we keep the bacteria safe from viruses? And how do we look at what, how bacteria have done over the years, because they have all these sequences from their Danisco uh, company research. So I think there's a hand-in-hand -hand with uh, translational uh, applications and basic research. But in this case, Jennifer was pursuing it, not saying, I want to make a gene editing tool. She was pursuing it because around the world, scientists were saying, how the hell does this CRISPR system work in bacteria? You, you talked about her history and her, her development as a scientist, but um, can, can you put your finger on what, what is her secret to success? And how, how has she done done so well and discovered such amazing things? And, and maybe this is also a broader question about, you know, sci scientists at the highest level that are doing these amazing things. What what do they have and, and how do they approach their work? I think for Jennifer, and I'm just thinking about this for the first time because I didn't do at the end of the book seven secrets, you know, from Jennifer's life. But when she goes in Shostak, Jack Shostak's lab, um, he says, just keep asking the big picture. And that's where they get, how did life begin? But he also stressed, and she also knew, that God is in the details, that you really have to know not only how the RNA is, you know, the composition of the RNA and the chemical component, you have to know every twist and every fold. And the tiniest fold in a part of this self-replicating intron that she was looking at, it's the fold and twist that makes it work the way it does. That's the tiny clue in this detective tale that she gets at that point in her journey. And so I think looking at the really big pictures, but also obsessing over the uh, most uh, tiny details is one of the things that makes Jennifer Doudna 
successful. The other is a certain persistence. And I think like Einstein, Leonardo, other great uh, thinkers, she also thought very visually, which is why she becomes a structural biologist. It's, as she says, I can't figure out what a molecule does unless I can visualize its twists and folds and structures. Um, she's also pretty much perfected the complex mix of competition and cooperation, how to be both collegial but also race like hell against Fong Zhang and the other people at the Broad when you know you're in 2012 and you're trying to make the discovery. And her form of collegiality and cooperation in team building is unlike other people's I've written about, especially Steve Jobs, who liked to have creative conflict in his team, have people who you know, were always clashing with one another. Jennifer made sure that anybody who was going to join her team, whether it be as a graduate student, a postdoc, or a person in the lab, or PI who would be part of the team, is like, okay, meet everybody on the team, and then we're all going to discuss whether we think this person fits in. I say, well, doesn't that lose some of the creative abrasiveness of somebody who doesn't fit in but disrupts things? And she says, maybe so, but this is the way I build teams, and I feel more comfortable with it. It's remarkable. So would you say that, that it's sort of consistent among many of the people that, that you've written about? Well, with with... Jennifer, one of the intriguing things, and, and this is typically the case for scientists in modern times, you go from being the person that designs the experiment and collects the data, writes about it, to the person that sort of ends up managing a lot of people to do that. So how, I mean, how, how has she thought about that? And how, how do you think that she's come to be, you know, the hands-on, the amazing hands-on scientist and now the kind of, you know, manager of amazing hands-on science? In all fields, including mine, when I was a journalist at a magazine or you know, Time or CNN, and suddenly you uh, get moved from being the uh, bench journalist, we'll call it, to being uh, the person who has to manage an entire enterprise, that transition can be a difficult one. But at Jennifer, it worked out pretty well, because even though she likes working at the bench, and there's probably no principal investigator or head of any lab that doesn't at least claim, gee, I'd much prefer to be at the bench at 3 a.m. doing my own experiments, uh, I, I think she actually liked to be able to build teams and manage labs. And her way of operating in that regard as a manager is she's very hands-off. If I talk to, say, Martin Yinek, who did the main experiments on the CRISPR-Cas9 in 2012. She said, boy, she lets you go on, you know, she gives you some guidance, she gives you the 30,000 feet, you know, uh, overview. But if you're not a self-starter, if you're not coming up with your own experiments and then doing them, you're going to be lost in her lab because she doesn't micromanage you. But then, when you get near uh, the discovery, when she can see, uh, oh, I can tell where this is leading, and especially if she can hear footsteps over her shoulder of other labs trying those things, uh, then she's in the uh, lab every evening, and she's there early each morning, and she's looking into, uh, you know, she's looking at the images or looking into the microscope even and saying, all right, have you considered doing this with the RNA or have you considered this or let's do this or sometimes really being driven and saying, uh, I'm going to be here at around 10 p.m. Make sure you, or where are those experiments? Have you finished them yeah. yet? So that's, again, a, a sort of combination of like keeping the big picture in view as a manager and then getting in there and, you know, Messing with the details. Grabbing a pipette when you need to. (laughs) 
So um, you, you've written about a lot of um, scientists, a lot of people, but especially scientists. What do you think da Vinci and, and um, Einstein would say about Jennifer? Or, or, and maybe if, if you can put words in their mouth, what do you think they would say about CRISPR? Yeah, they, uh, especially Leonardo, is to me, and that's what I wrote about him, one of the uh, clear expressions of curiosity-driven science. I mean, just somebody, I mean, he was curious about everything from the formation of seashells and why they're spirals and why the spirals follow the same math as water flowing down a rock, or for that matter, the curls on the Mona Lisa, but also the layers of seashells and how that disproves, as he was the first to really write about, the biblical, I'm not the first to write about, but, you know, in his uh, community, the biblical story of the flood, uh, that they, that Leonardo at least sees the relationship between basic curiosity and invention. He's incredibly curious about how bird wings work, whether they flap up faster or down faster in different species and how their bone structure works. And he does it. But of course, famously, he tries to create flying machines. I mean, that's just one example. But over and over through his notebooks, you'll see him absolutely fascinated about light and how it can be bent either by molecules of water or by pieces of glass. But then he dissects the human eye and then he uses uh, that notion to help do the artistic perspective in The Last Supper or even the perspective of the smile of the Mona Lisa that changes as your eyes move. So he is able to connect basic science to inventions and to art in a way, Steve Jobs was the one who pushed me to write about him. He said, you know, that because Steve liked to think he stood at the intersection, Steve did, of the arts and the sciences, of the humanities and technology. He said, well, the person who did that most was Leonardo. And so, and, and, and you know, Steve said, I start with a basic curiosity and then finally get to a product. And so that's why I undertook the Leonardo uh, biography. Awesome. Well, let's circle back to another issue in the book that I think Marty and I both really enjoyed reading about, and that, that's the, the aspects of the race uh, to get to CRISPR. Um, so this was playing out in 2011 and 2012. Um, and, and can you just sort of relate the, the basics of that race? So, so who was involved and, you know, who, who were the, the leading teams that were competing with one another and, and what happened? There are two great races in the book, one sort of the 2011 and 12, to figure out what is the CRISPR system bacteria using? What are the real components? CRISPR-Cas9. And the race was mainly led uh, by Jennifer Dowden and Emmanuel Sharp and Jay's team, which who win, and the two of them win, uh, just the two of them, of course, the Nobel Prize. But you had poor Virginia Sixnius, one of my favorite characters in the book, a very shy Lithuanian, who also had very much looked at most of the components. Now, I, there's a technical detail, which I describe in my book, that he doesn't get the full uh, 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 component tracer cast, uh, the uh, tracer RNA, it's uh, full a role in this process. But generally, other than that detail, he gets it, but he can't get himself published. I mean, he's an obscure Lithuanian at Vilnius University, and he keeps getting rejected. And Jennifer and uh, Emmanuel have discovered all these elements, 
And they know a lot of other labs are also, you know, right on their heels doing it. And they hear, she hears, or Jennifer actually gets asked if she'll referee this uh, 60th paper, and she declines, saying, I'm on uh, trail too. But she pushes the editors of science, and she pushes her own team, get this done as quickly as possible, and thus beats to the publication finish line uh, Sixnius and the others. But at that moment, a new starting gun fires as soon as that paper is published, which is, okay, you've used it in the test tube and bacterial cells. That's really amazing because you know the exact components and how they work. Now we have to see, can they be used in mammalian cells, or more specifically human cells in this case, and there's a race from labs around the world to do it. And within six months, five teams pretty much do it by January 2013. And three teams do it uh, exactly, which is Fong Zhang's team at the Broad, then George Church, who had been Fong Zhang's uh, doctoral dissertation advisor, mentor, and you know, uh, advisor at Harvard, uh, very upset because Fong Zhang didn't tell him that Fong Zhang was in this race. But George Church uh, publishes the same day. Uh, they published jointly in the journal in early January 2013. And then um, Jennifer Dowden's team uh, publishes two weeks later in January of 2013. So it's almost a photo finish. Uh, but then both sides had secretly or unsecretly, uh, secretly in Fong Zhang's case, applied for patent applications as they led up to the publication. And that fight is still being fought out in the courts. Yeah. So, so one thing I really liked in the book was your sort of nuanced perspective on what's fair and what's unfair and how scientific competitions played out and, you know, who, if anybody, should be hurt by being scooped. It seemed like that was a a super intense time for this this sort of stuff. Well, I come from a journalism background, so I understand the nature of scoops and having friends at other publications or networks who are scooping you, but then you go out for a beer later that uh, weekend and say, hey, congratulations, you scooped me, but uh, we were close. Uh, so, yeah, the, but the interesting yeah thing about that is how that does play out in the journal system, and uh, that was something I learned while doing the book. I thought it was really neat that, you know, multiple times in the book, you took the position of this group said that they were scooped or this group said that something took place that really didn't sort of seem fair. And you always sort of weighted both sides of that and then gave your own position. Was there any was there any particular example, though, where it was clearly unfair and sort of everybody except maybe the, the guilty party would own up? No, no, nothing is totally clear in biology or even in physics, as Einstein <laughs> teaches us. But my favorite example of that uh, was uh, when uh, it was involved Eric Lander, who's quite aggressive and ran the Broad, and be Biden's chief science advisor, and Fong Jang, his protege, and Jennifer. And uh, at one point, uh, I was talking to Eric Lander over you know, I think Denner, maybe we were at a Red Sox game together in Boston a couple of years ago, and he's telling me, oh, you know, Jennifer Doudna, you know, she really did something when she heard that Sixnius was about to publish that paper. She was pushing, I can show you the email, she was pushing the editors of Science so they could rush their paper in and scoop the Lithuanians. And, uh, and I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. So then I go back to Jennifer Dowd and I say, you know, hey, were you, you know, I know you were doing this. I've seen the emails. 
you know, were you pushing and racing to get this paper in? And was that wrong? And she says, yeah, I was racing to get that paper in, and that's what science competition is all about, and it's not wrong. And she says to me, you go back to Eric Lander, and you ask him, has he ever done something like that? Has he ever pushed to beat somebody by rushing the editors of a journal? So I go back, you know, me, I'm, I'm the, one of the joys I have in this type of thing is I've been around long enough, I've you know, know these players. So I'm back in Boston. I say, okay, Jennifer tells me I should ask you, have you ever done that? And he looks at me and he has that wonderful smile Eric Lander does with the mustache that half covers it up. But, you know, I'd love to play poker with him because you can read his face very easily. <laughs> and it's a wry smile. He says, yep, I sure have. And no, uh, that's not a, uh, you know, that's not a sin. That's not a a felony, and it's probably not even a misdemeanor, but I'm just saying it happened. <laughs> but that's why I try to show that, you know, these are, I mean, sometimes people write competition stories or, you know, or, or races and stuff, and they make everybody to be heroes or villains, but science is not that way. And certainly with Fong Jang and Eric Lander, who sometimes, you know, Eric can get into clashes with people because he's not a milk toast. But Fong Jang is the sweetest person you'll ever meet. You know, a corn-fed Iowan kid, you know, with that geniality and hospitality. He knew I was writing about one of his competitors as the main character. But I said, the book's not just about Jennifer. It's going to be about all the players. She's just a central thread. And, you know, we went to his lab, spent a lot of time there. He, you know, had you know, meals at Legal Seafood next to Kendall Square. These are all good players. And George Church, of course, is, well, George Church and Emmanuel Charpentier, but George Church is a mad, you know, he's a deep gentleman disguised as a mad scientist. And Emmanuel, you know, finally defined for me by just looking at her the word charmant. I speak French, but I always said, I wonder what charmant exactly means, you know. But when I saw her French charm, I said, okay, I get it. So, Walter, we want to turn to the the last sort of section of the book, and there's a lot to, to walk through here. Um, and it's, I think, obviously the, the sort of ethics of, of CRISPR. And I think we need to spend the most time on the ethical side. So there's another dimension of risk that you bring up in the book and, and you know, the people about whom you've write, written, they talk about a lot. And that's just risks, risks and in, in some sort of maybe direct effects on health. But in addition to that, there's some great anecdotes that you have in the book about the biohackers who just inject themselves on, was it a YouTube stream or something like that? So maybe it's not so risky, or maybe they didn't actually do it right and therefore got around the risk. But what risks are we talking about? Not the ethical dimensions, but what are the actual direct health health consequences that, that may come up here? Well, off-target edits are a huge risk, and we had that with Ho Jiwon Ki, the Chinese scientist who made the CRISPR babies in 2018, the first designer babies. You know, that scene when you look at what he showed, a lot of uh, potential off-target addicts or mosaicism. Uh, those, I think, are e- not easily, because I'm not a bench scientist, but at least the people I've talked to have said, yeah, we've pretty much nailed how to uh, avoid off-target edits when it's a simple uh, genetic edit we're making. Uh, so those are the safety and risk factors I think I would look at. Okay, okay. But because when the edits are happening, now the technology is so refined, the scissors are so specific, 
what maybe used to be a problem isn't a problem. I guess you, you're likely not encouraging people in their garage to be doing this necessarily, but it's not the same as it used no, to be. No, but I think you should have on Josiah Zane or the uh, biohacker who is... That would be really fun. He keeps, oh, I'm going to have him on. I do a little show, I'm gonna, so I'm going to try to beat you at getting him. But he's... Uh, but those questions you ask, you know, let's ask Josiah. He does it in his basement. He did it. His basement was in Berkeley, right near Jennifer's lab. He's now moved to Austin. But, um, and he live streamed himself, you know, doing these things. And he's in my book as a character, almost like Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream. He pops up every now and then and says, what fools these mortals be? And he sort of, you know, plays the fool, but he's the wise person who says, we can just do this. And so he does a CRISPR edits of genes that would do a myostatin regulator so that he can have bigger muscles. And I'm watching as he's jamming the needle into his arm. Now, it doesn't work because I think you would have to do it over a long period of time. Uh, but he does remind us that citizen science is actually a good thing. I mean, when I wrote about Steve Jobs and the other innovators of the digital revolution, it didn't happen at DEC and IBM. It happened at the Homebrew Computer Club. These were cyber hackers. Well, at the moment, there's a priesthood in the biology community for good reason. I mean, we don't want biohackers to have as much free reign as the Homebrew Computer Club did in hacking with the Intel 8080 microprocessor. But, uh, you know, we are going to have these things. And when COVID hit, he hacked the DNA that uh, Novartis is doing. He hacked that um, DNA-based vaccine, and he injected it into himself. And then he sent me, I just saw it yesterday, I was cleaning up my dresser. He sent me a vial and said, okay, inject it. Here it is. Here's the DNA vaccine. You're my, Go for it. Yeah, you've been interviewing me. Enough. Go for it. And I'm like, no way. I'm going to inject this in myself, a DNA vaccine. But it did made me, and this is like eight months ago, it said, okay, I'm going to sign up for the Pfizer trial. And so I signed up for a clinical trial because I'm not going to be as brave as Josiah Zayner, but I do believe in citizen science. And yeah. one easy way to do it is for all of us to join clinical trials. Well, let's spend the last few minutes on um, this this issue of the ethics of, of CRISPR, and I'll just ask it straight out. So is it ethical to use CRISPR on humans? And then the, I think the interesting complementary question is, is it ethical to not use CRISPR on, on humans? And I think that way you phrase it is exactly right, and I'm so glad you said it that way, because we all start with the recoil uh, of, will this be ethical to use? And as I said earlier in this show, then you meet the 12-year-old or the 10-year-old or the person with you know, genetic problems or David Sanchez in my book who loves playing basketball, he's 17, except for when sickle cell makes him double up in front of all of his friends and writhe on the floor of the court. And you say, okay, would it be ethical not to try to I do this. I mean, every creature on this planet, large and small, uses all the tricks in its playbook in order to thrive, and there's no particular reason we shouldn't use all of the tricks. But this is a dangerous one, meaning it has unintended consequences, not just biological, but social and moral unintended consequences it can have. If you start letting the rich buy better genes for their kids, mm -hmm. or if you start... Magnify inequality. Yeah, right? No, not just... Ma yes, magnify it, but kick it up into a whole quantum orbit so it's not just greater inequality. It's encoded in the species, like in Brave New World or Gattaca. 
or you edit out the diversity of our species. Well, you know, that's not a good thing either. So I think you, it's a slippery slope, but uh, at a certain point I realize all slopes are slippery. So, you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to figure out how do we get a foothold here? How do we go step by step with caution, which makes slopes less slippery? And usually hand in hand helps. So I do that through the book. As I say, the book doesn't end with here are the seven secrets and here's the seven easy answers. We have to go step by step through you know, starting with, say, sickle cell, which has already been done, or Huntington's. But then you say, okay, things that are clearly medically necessary, meaning they can't be fixed easily another way, and they're true medical disabilities that are harmful. And then you have to start playing with the word disabilities. Is deafness a disability? And, you know, I would, if I were in the uh, a private room of a clinic and got to pick the traits of my kid, I would definitely pick not deaf. I'd pick hearing enabled. But, you know, you have to wrestle with what does that do to society when we edit out uh, anything from skin colors to hearing enabled to sexual orientation to tall and short and fat and skinny? Uh, do we want individuals to get to decide at the genetic supermarket what traits they want to have? And what does that say about our definitions of disabilities? So I'm getting complex here, but that's why it's a few chapters in the book, as not just Jennifer Doudna and her scientific colleagues go hand in hand with me as we explore this, but uh, Michael Sandel and people you know, who have written about justice and philosophy, bioethicists, uh, uh, religious leaders. But it's not even for just all those experts. I think we have to decide. And by we, I mean me and you and listeners to this podcast and people who don't listen to this podcast because they don't know enough about biology but should at least know what the ethical issues are. Because it's not going to be easy to keep this genie contained in bottles, but it would help to have a social consensus among people who actually understood what the, what the questions were. Speaking of consensus, Walter, is there any consensus about the difference between sort of somatic editing and germline editing? There's a profound difference there. I mean, just in general, but you could speak about that, but then maybe broaden to the current government perspective, U.S., in anywhere in the world, what they're thinking about. Yeah, the big line to cross is the germline, which is the difference between somatic edit and germline edit. Somatic edit being in the human body, like could be done with Victoria Gray when her sickle cells are, I mean, her T cells are taken out and edited and she can now produce blood cells that are not sickled. That's done in the patient with the patient's consent and doesn't affect the patient's children or all the descendants or the human race. But if you do it in early stage embryos, like Hoshanki did two and a half years ago in China uh, to make the CRISPR babies that caused headlines, or you do it in reproductive cells, eggs or sperm or whatever, you can make what are called germline edits that are inheritable. It means every cell in the body, in theory, would have those edits, including your reproductive cells, which means your children would have those edits and all your descendants would. That's a line ethically that is you probably don't want to cross uh, without pausing for a long time. 
uh, because you're not just editing the patient, you're editing the human species. That said, if we're going to keep editing sickle cell by doing it patient by patient, it now costs more than a million dollars a patient. That tells you you're not going to get very far with a very widespread disease. When you ask David Sanchez, that 17-year-old who's writhing on the floor uh, when he plays basketball, they say, uh, you know, uh, what happens, uh, we might be able to edit this so your children won't have it and their children won't. And first he says that's good, and then on the second thought he says, well, maybe that should be up to my kids uh, when, after they're born because sickle cell taught me patience and taught me persistence and empathy. And then on third thought, when I go back to him months later, he said, yeah, I really would love my kids not to suffer from sickle cell. So we all have to not just have a first thought about this. We have to have second thoughts and third thoughts. All right. His, his experience sort of encapsulates the whole argument right there. Uh, what does Jennifer Doughton think about these ethical considerations? Her thinking has evolved, as have mine, as I hope everybody else. Uh, like all species, we should evolve when new things happen. And I think at first she recoiled right after she invented uh, the single-guide RNA and the technology of CRISPR-Cas9 with uh, Emmanuel and others. Uh, she had a nightmare, which is somebody wanted to learn to use that technology. She walks in the room, and it's Hitler. And so she says, okay, this is bad. I'm going to gather a lot of scientists. We're going to try to have rules that, and regulations. And you asked about international. She gathers the Chinese, who, by the way, put that Chinese scientist in jail. We, have, we share a lot of uh, ethical guidelines with the Chinese and the Europeans and the British. So I think there's an international consensus on step-by-step, -step, medically necessary, don't cross the germline, that type of thing. But uh, her thinking evolves, and unlike Eric Lander and some others, she doesn't want a hard and fast moratorium on research, even into the germline. Because when you meet the parents showing you the pictures of their kids, or you meet the kids themselves, or you look at coronavirus and you say, okay, what that Chinese doctor did was he edited out a receptor for a virus, and everybody said that was horrible. Okay, it's been a year now where we've been hit by the COVID uh, pandemic. Maybe it's not quite as horrible as we thought to use some of our tricks to make sure we're less susceptible to viruses. So the question doesn't become, is it an ethical horror story? It becomes, can we do it really safely and do it in this step-by-step, hand-in-hand way where we don't go barreling down a slippery slope? Well, Walter, that's a that's so much we could talk about on the ethical side, obviously, but we're, we're sensitive to your time. We know you've only got a couple minutes left, and uh, we want to give you the chance to bring up anything that we didn't ask you about what else was left on the cutting room floor for your book that, that did make it into the show today. Well, I did find that it was the people in the book that made the adventure so exciting. And, you know, this is not a biology textbook. I'm sure you have people on who write such great books and will write books about what's next for CRISPR. But this is a book not only about Jennifer Doudna, but also Emmanuel Charpentier growing up with her father being in charge of the parks near the Seine in Paris, or, you know, Fong Zhang being born in China and her mom taking him to Des Moines where he's embraced and uh, works in Methodist Hospital there. And all of them have this joy of being on a journey of discovery. And my editor, who started this book with me and has done for 40 years every book I've written, she died right near the end, but she was the one who told me, read and reread Horace Freely Judson's The Eighth Day of Creation, a book she edited in 1979, uh, because it's a journey of discovery. 
of really colorful people who just get the thrill, not in winning the patents or winning the prizes or even the publication of the papers, but that aha moment of something incredibly simple that Steve Jobs said to me, and it's in Leonardo's notebooks, and Einstein said when he got the compass, which is, nature is beautiful. It also happens to be useful. You can learn tricks from nature, but start with the fact that nature is beautiful. And so I wanted to write a book about a bunch of real people, colorful ones like George Church and charming ones like Emmanuel Charpentier, central character like Jennifer Doudna, real people who just love the beauty of nature and they loved it for curiosity's sake the way Leonardo did. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please consider supporting the show by donating on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bigbio. And please follow us on social media for the latest Big Biology news. Our interns regularly post about upcoming episodes and current stories in science. Please also spread the word about us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Tell a friend about us or just slip it into their running playlist. On our next episode, we talk to Dennis Walsh, a philosopher of biology at the University of Toronto. We talked to Dennis about his 2015 book, Organisms, Agency, and Evolution, in which he emphasizes the value of placing organisms front and center in evolutionary theory. But they're radically different. So how do you explain the way they're different? Well, it's the way the organism experiences this environment. Now, organisms are active entities. They adapt to their environments, they change their environments, they transduce the causal influences in the environment into, as it were, experiences. And I don't mean, I don't mean perceptual experience, I just mean the way the environment affects them. So the way the environment affects an organism is a kind of joint project of the capacities of the organism and the features of the environment. Thank you to Steve Lane for designing and managing our website. Dana Baxter, Jinkia Dahaki, and Jordan Greer help produce the podcast and manage our social media channels. And thanks to Ruth Demery for producing this episode. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.